may have to me tonight a little bit, please. I've <clears throat> contracted a respiratory infection, and so um, not been running any fevers or anything, just a heads up, but um, still <clears throat> kind of rough. So uh, look with me, if you will, please, in Jude in verse 3, and we'll read this verse we've been in now for um, studying for some time. Jude verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. I do want to go ahead and tell you that we will not completely finish the study of, of this verse tonight, even if we complete our study that, uh, through this portion of it, we'll still need to come back and at least address some matters, um, some truths concerning this, this passage in this verse. If you remember over the past several weeks of our study in, in Jude 3, I've pointed out that there are three implications which demand our attention as stated by Jude, uh, specifically stated in verse 3. And that first is that believers must personally engage the faith, which is implied by the term earnestly. And again, earnestly contend is really, in this case, a phrase uh, that's translated from uh, a single Greek word. But yet, at the same time, in the English grammar, of course, earnestly would be an adverb and contend is a verb. And so the, the implication of what's being stated here, even as it has been translated for us, is that believers are to personally engage earnestly. That, that shows a personal, personal investment, a personal engagement in, in concerning the faith. Believers also, second, must personally defend the faith, which comes in the word contend. And again, we've seen how that, that statement uh, does not solely mean to fight alone, though fighting would be included in that fighting, meaning, of course, not uh, literally physically engaging in a, in, a, in a strike fest, but rather speaking of the fact of standing up and defending the faith, fighting for the faith, if you will. And then believers must personally acknowledge the exclusivity of the faith. And that's implied by the statement, once delivered unto the saints. And again, the statement, once delivered unto the, sta- unto the saints, is a- an all-inclusive statement, meaning one time and for all, it was entirely delivered unto the saints. And so again, if, if we understand that truth, there is no progressive revelation of God to man. God has revealed himself as he has so chosen to do through the person of his son, ultimately, and as well through his word, which of course is a testimony and the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, often our, our prayers might seem to, uh, we might pray in manners such as this, that we would say something along the lines of, uh, Lord, you know, uh, reveal your truth to me. But really, I believe that's, that's not the proper way for us to pray. But rather, it should be that we are praying that the Lord illuminate our hearts and minds to his revealed truth. Because he's already revealed his truth. The problem is, we don't see it all as we should. And that God would give us discernment of his spirit to have understanding. And to uh, be able to uh, comprehend and, and to have that spiritual discernment by spirit to not only receive the truth as in understanding alone, but purpose of walking therein. So we look first at believers, uh, the first thought here, that believers must personally engage the faith, again implied by the term earnestly, and this implication of the phrase earnestly contend, again, is one of personal engagement, personal involvement, personal struggle. Uh, it, it, it as well as you recall, I told you the root word from which this word is translated <clears throat> Excuse me, is a gone, and that is a word from which we derive our word 
agony. It has that of, of a, a struggle, a conflict, if you will, strife. But then the word's been translated in multiple uh, ways throughout the New Testament as we've looked in previous studies. So second, believers must firstly defend the faith which is contend. And to contend for the faith is not to simply become obnoxious concerning what you claim to believe, but it is to completely commit yourself to understanding the truth of the depths of the faith and knowledge of Christ as he is revealed in his word. Jude further emphasized this truth in the latter part of his epistle when he said in verse 20, Beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. So it's interesting that the same faith, which Jude referred exclusively as the faith, notice if you again in verse 3, that you earnestly contend for the faith. The is a definite article, and it's defining a specific faith or describing a specific thing, not one of many, one thing, the faith. But then notice he says in verse 20, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. And so he refers to the faith in verse 3, and then verse 20, as your most holy faith, as he concludes this epistle. Now, I find this interesting, and we'll deal with this more in the future, I'm sure, because faith is not yours in that it is something subjective to you, but rather it is the faith. But the reality is, if you've been made part of the faith through faith, by grace through faith, which is belief in Christ, then it does become your faith in the sense of it is something that you personally have experienced and it's that which you personally do invest in that which you personally are engaged in and personally even defend and so jude makes that i think clear clear here when he says the faith contend for the faith and then he says building yourselves up on your most holy faith so he makes it personal there and again not to be subjective in any manner whatsoever but rather stating it is objectively the faith but yet it is something which we have personal interest in, personal involvement, personal engagement, because we've personally received by personal belief in Christ. So as we consider the meaning of Jude's exhortation in this epistle to earnestly contend for the faith, it is important that we first remember that heresy is not always a clearly obvious contradiction of truth, but at times can simply be a perverting of the truth. And this is important because when we talk of the faith, what do you think we're talking about? The truth, the truth of God, the truth of Christ, all the teachings of Christ. And we'll look more into that in a moment. But the point is that when he makes this exhortation to earnestly contend for the faith, it's important that we then have an ability to distinguish between that which is the faith, that which is the truth, that which has been handed down by God, and that which has been perverted by man. And so contradiction of the truth is contradiction of the truth, but there's times that contradiction of the truth comes in a very subtle wet manner or in a very subtle way. And this is important for us to recognize, especially in light of contending for the faith. Paul emphasized this in his letter to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15, he said, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. 
and no marvel. For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Now, this is a very interesting statement Paul makes here in Corinthians. We often refer to Satan transforming himself as an angel of light. You've heard that said. You've probably quoted that many times. But it seems to be, much too often, the latter part of the statement, which is really the emphasis of the point. The emphasis is not that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light, though Paul is definitely declaring this truth. The emphasis is that there are workers of unrighteousness, and they are, they are perverters of the truth of the faith and of 2 Corinthians 11. Therefore, if, 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 if Satan transforms himself as though he were an angel of light, it is no great also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. So here's what's being stated. There are those who are absolutely opposed to the truth of Christ who make themselves who make themselves to appear to be ministers of righteousness. So here you find, if you will, the, that blurring of the line. You have the truth. You have those who absolutely truth, adamantly, vocally, by their lifestyles. And then you have those who are subtle concerning their perversion of the truth. And if you will, these are those who are extremely dangerous because they have truth and speak truth but it is perverted truth. And Scripture warns of this time and again. So people are often deceived into believing the lies of Satan and the perversion of the truth due to the way it is packaged. In this passage, we are reminded, as I've said to you many times, that everything that is spiritual is of God. We, we often think of things that are spiritual. People talk about their spiritual experiences. Listen. Just because something spiritual does not mean it's godly or of God at all. And that needs to be understood. Satan is a spiritual being, as he as we've studied recently on Sunday morning, so months back now. But Satan is a spiritual being who not only spiritual manner, but uses truth, like we say, misuses truth or perverts truth as a means of spiritual attack. Both the Old and New Testament provide foundational examples of this truth that Satan misuses or perverts the truth as a means of spiritual attack. If you look at the Old Testament, the first evidence of the truth was manifested in the way Satan deceived even the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3.1, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of the tree of the garden. He says, So has, has God really said that you should not eat of the tree of the garden? Paul explained the danger of such craft, the craftiness of Satan being used in this manner, again in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 3. But I fear lest by any means, as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtility, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Here's what Paul is saying, as he says in Galatians. 
If one preaches another Christ, what does he do? Let him be accursed. Remember the statement? As well, even in Philippians, find where Paul talks about there are those who preach Christ of contention and strife and envy. Remember that? But he said, if Christ is preached, nonetheless, I rejoice. But again, I told you as we worked through uh, in that first chapter uh, early on in our weeks of study through Philippians on Sunday mornings, I, I told you that notice Paul is not saying if a man preach about Jesus or a perversion of Jesus. No, he says if Christ is preached. That is an absolute statement that we cannot afford to misunderstand. He's not saying if someone name drops Jesus, he is saying if Christ is truly being proclaimed, the message, if it is pure, the motive, Paul says, I don't even care about the motive. I rejoice that the message is purely preached. Christ is proclaimed. But that's in contradiction to what Paul is saying in Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11, and also in contradiction to what Paul is saying in Galatians when he speaks about those who preach another gospel, a perverted gospel, he says, let him be accursed. And here he says, you, you might well bear with him. And, and the point being, these are those that would preach another Jesus, another gospel, or as Paul mentions, in, uh, defines it in Galatians, it is a perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is another. He says, it's another gospel, but actually then he says, which is not another, but a perversion of the true. So he's saying it's a perversion of the true gospel. And so Satan, as we know, even with Eve, used the to tempt Eve to sin by casting doubt on that which God had said. If you look a little further, Genesis 3, 4, and 5, a few verses down. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, obviously Adam and Eve did not become gods or as gods in that respect, but they did know good and evil, whereas before they only knew that which was good. They did not know that which was evil. But notice what Satan says to Eve. He says, yeah, God said you shall not eat every tree. Then he says, ye shall not surely die. And, he, and he, so he's taken what God has said and perverting it, casting doubt upon it with Eve and saying, look, here's what's going to happen. And by the way, in part, this is true. It is what happened in part, but not fully. And what happened was when Eve took of that fruit and, and, and then gave to Adam and he took of the fruit, they immediately spiritually died. They were separated from God in fellowship. But then they also, the began. That is when their physical death began. And they died physically that day. But notice, Satan told some truth because the fact of the matter is, again, when they only knew that which was good, now all of a sudden they are that which is evil because they have partaken of this. But here's what didn't happen. They didn't become gods, nor did they become as gods, outside of the fact that they knew now what was between the difference between good and evil, which they did not understand by experience. Then, But might I say to you, the fact of the matter being that Satan is saying this is what's really going to happen in contrast to that which God had said. So he's casting doubt there, obviously. And in the New Testament, another prominent example of this truth was manifested in the manner in which Satan tempted Jesus, after failing to cause Jesus to give in to the previous two attempts to tempt him to sin, Satan then referred to Scripture in a last-ditch effort to tempt him. In Luke 4, 9-12, through 12, we read, And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou a foot against a stone, and Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now notice what Satan does here. 
He says in verse 10, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge of thee. This is the last of the three named temptations or listed temptations. Now we know Jesus, it says he was in the, he was in the desert 40 days being tempted of the devil. But then we are given these three examples of the temptation. This is very interesting. We, we have a very crafty enemy. He is very subtle in his attack, which means crafty. He is very uh, uh, manipulative, obviously. And Satan tempted, if you notice and you catch, catch a glimpse of this truth, you'll understand, Satan tempted both Eve and Jesus on the same three fronts using the same methods, of which John explained that it is, it is in this very way in which we also are tempted. If you look in 1 John 2.16, which again we studied just months back, it says, for all that is in the world... Here it is, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Both Eve and Jesus were tempted in these very same areas. It's no wonder John listed as he does here, and then we find in Genesis of Eve, and then we find the temptation of Christ in Luke 4. So let me connect the dots for you here. So first you see the lust of the flesh. In Genesis 3, 6, the beginning of the verse concerning Eve, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now, yes, she saw this, but the emphasis is here is not that she saw, it's that she considered this. She understood this to be good for food. In Jesus, in Luke 4, 2, and 3, being 40 days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat, ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command the stone that it be made bread. So in both cases, this is the lust of the flesh. Now, obviously, this is not a sinful lust in and of itself. God has created us with a need to eat. And at times, I think we lose good gauge on that need from where it really should be. But, but we do have a need to eat. If we're going to live, we must eat. And we desire food. And there's times where you really get hungry. Especially if you've not, if you, for instance, just to, to explain, if you've worked all day long, obviously, you're out in the sun, you're out in the heat, you're, or you're, you're working hard physically, and you don't eat all day, there comes a point in time where food literally becomes fuel, and you have to eat in order to sustain yourself and maintain your being or your health. And then there's other times we eat because we enjoy eating. But nonetheless, there's a desire, an innate desire within us to eat. We, we want to eat. And that in itself is not sinful. But notice what Satan does. So he takes, in reality, something that God has made man with, and that is a need for food and a desire for food, a desire to eat, and now he's going to pervert it. How does he pervert it? Well, with Eve's case, he says, you know, this is good. You can eat it, and you're gonna, it's going to do good for you. And in the case of Christ, he's 40 days not eating, and yet now when this is ended, of course he's hungry. It says he hunger. He physically is hungry. He wants to eat. So what does Satan do? Of course he knows that. And he says, hey, why don't you just turn this bread into stone or stone into bread and then you'll eat and be satisfied. Second, it's the lust of the eyes. Concerning Genesis 3, 6, it goes on to say, and that the fruit was pleasant to the eyes. So she saw that it was good for food, lust of the flesh, but it's also pleasant to the eyes. This has to do with the lust of the eyes. It's what she's seeing and what she desires because of what she sees. Then in Jesus' temptation in Luke 4, 5 through 7, and the devil taking him up into a high mountain showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. 
And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. So what's the point here? He said to Jesus, take him on a high mountain at this high point, showed unto him, showed unto him all saying, look at what you can have. It is within my ability to give this to you. Now, obviously, that is a stretch of the imagination as well. All things belong to the Lord. The earth fullness thereof. Now, <clears throat> Satan is the prince of this world, the God of this world. He is wicked and evil, and we get all that, but he doesn't literally own any of it. He only has dominion over that which God has allowed him to have dominion over as a consequence of sin itself and God's judgment upon sin. So here he says to Jesus, so he takes him up on this high mountain and shows him, look at this. Eve saw it was pleasant. Jesus, Satan takes Jesus to say, look, look at this. You can have all this. I can give all of it to you. But then third, we have the pride of life, as John mentioned. In Eve's case, in Genesis 3, 6, we go on to read, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. So what is this? A fruit to be desired to make one wise. Do you realize what that is? That is the pride of life. This is going to make me wise. This is going to be good for me. I'm going to benefit out of this. Regardless of what God has said, this is good. Concerning the case of Christ and his temptation in Luke 4, 9 through 11, we read, And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. Now verse 10, notice, here's where he does exactly what he did with Eve. He begins to use scripture or misuse scripture in this case. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now, how, is that, how would that appeal to one's pride? Well, Jesus is the Son of God. And now Satan's saying, if you are really who you say you are, prove it. Prove it. Doesn't the Scripture say that God will send angels to bear you up, that you won't even hurt your foot? Because you are the Son of God? So if this is true, then prove it. Show me that it's true. And so we see in both Eve's temptation and in our Lord's temptation, and really uses the same methods, which he still uses on us. And in both cases, he misused the Word of God in an attempt to get what he desired out of it. And if Satan can appear as an angel of light, go back to 2 Corinthians again and remember what Paul said. If Satan appears as an angel of light, then surely it's no wonder that his ministers would also appear as ministers of righteousness. It is imperative that we maintain an awareness such methods of our enemy. Satan continues in his attempt to pervert and to misuse God's truth and to cast doubt upon God's word, and we are given the responsibility, we are given stewardship of the faith or the truth of God. So back to verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation... It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So we need to remember that Jude's intention in this letter is to encourage and motivate the believer to faithfulness, specifically concerning faithfulness to the faith. Over time, the church has greatly complicated the truth of the faith by its formation not only of denominations, 
but also the divisions which now exist within denominations who identify under the same name or the professed banner. In other words, while, while Scripture testifies to the importance of identifying with Christ and those who identify with him, and also testifies at the same time of the importance of both calling out and refusing to acknowledge any perversion of the gospel or teaching that differs from the teaching of Christ, the Scriptures never call us as the church to split hairs over preferences and opinions. So I'm trying to dismantle here to some degree the misconception of what the faith is. The faith is not what we state in a creed or what we state in a bylaws or even statement of faith. That may be say these are things that we hold to and that may be true, but faith is not defined by us. The faith was given by God to us. And the faith is all of the truth of God. Now, we're going to move more into this, so just bear with me a few moments, but it's important, again, that we recognize this because what we've done is we, 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 we use terminology like this today, as many do, about um, like faith. If you are of the faith, you have like faith. And if you do not have like faith, like faith, it's because you're not the faith if the one you're comparing yourself to or examining is of the faith. And we have to recognize that. Now, Differences, of course we do, and I've said this to you many times. There are primary issues, secondary issues, tertiary issues, and these are just matters of fact. There are things which we are going to differ on, even within the same body of believers, within the same local body of, of a church. You will still find that we, don't all, we do not all agree on everything or see it all exactly the same way, and, and that's understandable, but that doesn't mean that we become uh, divisive because of that, because we have to understand that we all have our preferences and our opinions or even our understanding, but that has nothing to do with the faith that has been handed down to the saints. This is concrete and absolute, and we have to recognize that. Now, we still have to understand what this faith is, obviously. So Jude is not telling us that we are to fight among other, each other over differences in preferences, opinions, or, or methods. To contend for the faith is not to bicker and argue over what we do right and what someone else does wrong. That is not contending for the faith, unless we're talking about the belief concerning the deity of Jesus, who he is. But, but that's, not, that's not what we're talking about here. People will bicker and fight and become divisive, and contention abides because they see something differently than someone else. It, it neither is to isolate ourselves from everyone who does not do things the way that we do things. The faith does not mean to instigate division among the brethren. Paul sheds light on this matter in his epistle to the Philippian believers. In Philippians 1, 27-30, I, I mentioned just a portion of this a moment ago. Only let your conversation, your lifestyle, the manner of your living, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Now, that, that's an interesting and a very definitive statement. Paul is saying, only live in a manner of a life that is committed and submitted to the truth of the gospel of Christ. And then he says, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs and that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
Look, this is a very interesting statement here also. Notice Paul says, striving together, not striving against each other, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in nothing, terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and, of, and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Saying that we are to stand fast in one spirit. Now, understand, and this is where people get really confused. I understand this. And there has to be a definitive answer to what is the faith. And we're going to look into this further, so bear with me again. I'm trying to lead you into this slowly and help you to see what Paul is not talking about and what Jude is not talking about, that we might understand then what they are talking about. And the answer actually is quite simple. It really, truly is. And again, that's why I said complicated this so much so often you know we people will will form their standards and 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 have their their quote unquote what they call convictions or speak about how the principle of the word of god if something is a principle in god then it is absolute you be involved in the principle people talk principles as though they are recommendations in scripture or something alluded to in scripture no principles are are absolute instruction given by god to us and so when it comes to the principles of scripture it it, is the truth is the truth is the truth and there's just no middle ground there when it comes to things that we have studied for centuries and throughout the history since the first century church and have been pulled into and looked into and and debated and and Argue, when I say argued, I don't mean that necessarily in a negative light, but in a sense of wanting to come to truth, understanding the truth. When it comes to some of these matters, of course, they aren't all black and white. But then there's some things that are absolutely black and white. And, and what's so interesting is that so many, rather than engaging in the faith, that which is black and white in Scripture as believers, they would rather... the faith attempting to make their so-called standards or their preferences as though they are black and white principles or teachings in scripture and this is important to really understand because paul says one spirit stand fast in one spirit with one mind having to gather for the faith of the gospel as he says for the faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel. And so, definitive. This is absolute. This is concrete. This is, this is not left up again for, for uh, uh, subjectivity. But all this is objective. Paul also goes on to say here, of course, it's given in the behalf of Christ to not only believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. So we see that Paul says to suffer for his sake, that is the sake of Christ, is given to us by God, is granted unto us. We strive together, not against one another, but in agreement one with another for the faith of the gospel. Now, let me tell you what's happened. People become very 
possessive and they become fearful and they are competitive even within the church. And so what we've done is, rather than striving together with those that are genuinely of the faith, we want to isolate ourselves from people because they don't see things exactly like us. Not, not the black and white, but the things that we take our positions on that we may well be grounded and they may have well grounding too from their perspective or we may have error in our perspective. But the point being, this is not again about ecumenicalism. Now don't misunderstand this, but ecumenicalism, to, to sum it up in a very simplified manner, is whenever you build a campfire, you get everybody by the hand and join hands together, as I've said so many times, and you sing Kumbaya. And everybody just gets along, and we all, don't we all just have the same God? No, if you don't believe Jesus is the Christ, then you don't have the same God. If you believe that you are saved by we don't have the same salvation, the same God. If you believe, if you don't believe that uh, Christ literally came in the flesh, literally lived in the flesh, literally died in the flesh, and literally rose in a glorified flesh, then you don't have the same God. So it's not as though we join No, we're not together. But, just because someone certain aspects of Scripture a little differently that are not spelled out black and white in Scripture, that does not mean that we begin to contend with them striving against them. But rather, we are to stand in the truth of the faith. If we have the same Spirit, the same faith, the same Lord, the same baptism into this body of Christ, then why would we fight and struggle against one another concerning things that are really in eternity not even going to matter rather than obedient, being obedient to Scripture and contending for the faith, striving together for the faith of the gospel. To contend for the faith is to strive, strive steadfastly, unwavering, for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this striving may come to mean agonizing for the sake of the truth, as we've seen, or for the truth, and people made to be partakers in the sufferings of Christ. It's interesting that in Philippians 1, 27-30, here Paul speaks about striving for the faith of the gospel. Then in the following verses, he states two verses later, For unto you it is given on behalf of Christ. So why would we not expect to agonize over the faith? Why would we not expect to agonize in the faith for the sake of truth or agonizing over the truth? The implication in this exhortation to for the faith is this. Be faithful to the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to be steadfast to must suffer. But that warfare, which we are to fight faithfully for the cause of the gospel. Now the question remains then, what is the faith? Because I know you want me to tell you what is the faith. The Greek word from which this word faith is translated is the word pistis. And the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament states that the definition of the word translated faith in this verse ranges in meaning from subjective confidence to objective. There's a range in which this word is used. Let me give you an example of that. In Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says that we are endeavoring to maintain or keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then he goes on to speak about how there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Remember, one, all of these things Paul says. 
And one faith, as mentioned there, is not talking about the faith. It's the same word translated, but the meaning there is the, the means by which you came to belief. When Jude says contend for the faith, he's not talking about you defending the means by which you came to believe, the means God used, the faith given to you to believe God. He's talking about that which was handed down. This is about the entirety of Christianity as it biblically is defined and given. And so this word can be translated faith and yet have different meanings within Scripture. And I say that back to what the definition of the lexicon was, and that is that it ranges in meaning from subjective confidence to objective basis for confidence. When Jude says contend for the faith, this is the basis of confidence, and it's objective. There's no subjectivity here whatsoever. For instance, let me give you an example. Faith that is faith unto salvation is the faithfulness of Christ. Faith is given to us that we might believe and we understand that. But let me also say to you, not every one of us experienced the new birth exactly the same manner as another. The same Savior, the same Spirit, the same Word, the same truth, the same work of redemption. But we would all sit here and testify if we were to give an account of how we came to faith in Christ, to belief in Christ. Some of us came at the age of 12, others at the age of 40 or 50 or 60 or what have you. Some went through much struggle and lives of sin. Others were preserved from that, but still sinful nonetheless. Are you following me? It's not that it's subjective in that it's what you believe. No, it's the way in which we come to believe is not always exactly the same. I'll give you another example. If you look at the Philippian jailer, for instance, in Acts. The Philippian jailer, he drew a sword, and what was he about to do? He's about to kill himself. That's pretty desperate, isn't it? But then you find the Ethiopian that Philip was sent to, remember? And he's reading from the book of Isaiah, and he says, I don't understand this. And he was desperate to know the truth, but a different desperation. I don't believe the Philippian or the Ethiopian was about to kill himself. I don't think he was about to jump out of the chariot because he didn't understand this. But that Philippian jailer was literally about to thrust the sword into himself and die. So would you say to me that these are absolutely two different experiences of two different men coming to faith? Of course they are. Is it subjective? No, not at all. It's still the faith. It's still belief in Christ that by which they are saved. But the means by which they came to faith in Christ varied. But there's no variant to the faith. This is objective. This is the basis of our confidence. Nothing to do with subjectivity at all or personalized. Even though we take possession of it, and as Jude says, contend for the faith, then building yourselves up on your most holy faith, yeah, it, it becomes personal. But it's never been personalized for us. The faith is the faith. <laughs> and that's what Jude is explaining. What is the faith then? Paul explains in Philippians chapter 1, and Jude refers to in verse 3. He actually gives us answers right here. The faith is God's revelation of himself and his truth to man. <clears throat> that's what it is. Furthermore, it is Jesus Christ in which God's truth, his love, his mercy, and glory has been personified, which is the very object of our confidence. Here you have the faith. Where does our faith rest? In Christ. That doesn't matter about your personal 
experience of coming to belief in Christ, if you believe in Christ, your faith is absolutely, objectively in the person of Christ. That's absolute, right? And our confidence rests what? In who God has declared Christ to be. God has made Christ to be. God has exalted Christ to be. This is absolute. This is concrete. There's no ifs, ands, buts here at all. And this does not get personalized for us. Though it becomes very personal. And there's the difference. Furthermore, it, it, it is Christ, of course, as I mentioned, in whom this love and, and mercy and glory of God has been personified, who has become the object of our confidence. This is what Paul meant when he wrote to the Colossian believers, and he said, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the confidence of glory. Hebrews refers to the fact that we are the anchor of our soul. What's the anchor of our soul? Christ. This faith that was once handed down to the saints is not defined by one's belief or unbelief. Neither does this faith change because of one's belief or unbelief. The faith is the objective truth of God. And while over the centuries of time, men have written, instituted what is referred to as faith, as referred to by Jude, did not need to be categorized within a list of truths. For at that time, the first century church, the church understood and stood in unity concerning God's revelation to man through Jesus and his word. Nonetheless, this faith was still under attack. Now, this becomes very interesting, I believe. Because though it did, this faith did not need to be categorized within a list of documents or truths as we have done today, it still remains so that throughout time, men have attempted to help to distinguish between those who would hold to who would pervert the faith, and they've done so by providing what I like to refer to as the non-negotiables or the non-negotiable truths of the faith. And so there are what many would refer to as statements of faith, as creeds that have been written, confessions that have been written, and these things can be very helpful and very good because they do, if they are truly bound and, and rooted in Scripture, then they're just taking what the Scripture is saying and they're expounding on it, saying this is what we believe, this is and we believe this to be the faith. And so that's been, that's been explained throughout the, the years of time since the first century church. And I, I believe there is value to that in, in the sense that it is helping people to see the clarity of what is the truth and what is not the truth. Or the purity of, purity of the faith and the, those that would pervert or the perversions that have been given or handed down. <coughs> Excuse me. Through. So what are these non-negotiables? Let's just go through these quickly. These non-negotiables. Well, first of all, obviously belief in God. And I'm just going to give you a quick commentary on. Belief in his very being, and more specifically, his being as he's declared himself to be within his word. Himself as the Father, as the Son, and the Spirit consists of distinct eternal persons of one eternal divine being who happens to be twice, once in the Old Testament, Isaiah, and once in the New Testament in Revelation. He declares himself to be, or it is declared that he is, holy, holy, holy. Belief in the fallen, sinful nature of man. Man was created sinless, 
without sin. Man fell to sin in the garden, and now that sinful nature is inherent within every man. We, we know, Scripture clearly, black and white teaches, man is sinful. True? Period. God is, and he is who he says he is, man is sinful. Belief in the person of Christ. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead in the flesh bodily, as Colossians, Paul teaches. Jesus is divine. He was not created, but is eternal and was made manifest in flesh in the fullness of time. The work of Jesus. Jesus was sent by humanity in his flesh that he, being sinless, might die as God's atonement for the sin of man. Five, belief in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. But he rose victoriously over death on the third day after being buried. Since Jesus lived in the flesh, since Jesus died in the flesh, it was also necessary that he rise from the grave in the flesh. The sinless one died for the sinful. And what was the problem? Our flesh. Our sinful flesh. Six, belief in the eternal state of mankind. Men will either live forever or die forever. In other words, there is no annihilation of one's soul, but there will be a resurrection of the dead unto either life or condemnation. I've often said it like this. We'll either be born twice and die once, or born once and die twice. So while defending the non-negotiables is helpful, it is the very writings of the apostles which reveal the faith for which they were exhorting the early church to contend. And this is what I want to show you. You say, what is the faith? This is the faith. It, it, that's how simple it is. Now, there's a lot here. But here's the problem. The problem, as I've already shown you, is Satan likes to misuse and pervert the faith. The truth. Now, when I say this is the faith... I'm not saying this translation or English or even the Greek. I'm saying the Word of God, God's revelation of Himself to man. And how has God revealed Himself to man? Well, through creation He has, of course, but that's not the faith. And by the way, no man is to the faith or to faith in Christ by revelation of creation. It is the Word of God, the Gospel of Christ, by which men are redeemed. True? And so we must recognize that the faith is that which was once delivered unto the saints and not talking, about, not talking about a copy of the Scriptures. I'm talking about the truth of God as given in the Scriptures. This is the faith. This is that which was handed down once and for all, for all time. Such examples of the teaching of the faith and exhortation to defend the faith let me give you some examples of this. You really want to know what the faith is? Here's what it requires. You want to engage the faith? It doesn't mean you memorize six non-negotiables or five or seven. It doesn't mean that you make up your own list of non-negotiables or that you even memorize a confession. Are you understanding this? You want to know the faith? You must engage the faith. That is the Word of God. And here's what we find. Teaching of the faith and the exhortation to defend the faith, and it's not limited to these alone, but I do want to list these for you quickly. How about the book of Galatians? Do you recall with me? Judaizers 
are coming in and they're saying, Jesus is not sufficient, you must be circumcised. Remember that? You need Jesus, that's fine, but you also must be circumcised. These Judaizers are coming into these Gentile churches and saying this. Paul says, if anyone preaches the Christ, let him be accursed. Cursed of God. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? You know why? Because that's the faith that is once delivered on the saints. Jesus Christ is all-sufficient. So Paul spends all of Galatians explaining, teaching, and defending the faith. 1 Timothy chapter 4. The whole chapter. You know what Paul does? Defends explains the faith. First Timothy or 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4, 5. You know what Paul does? Explains, defends the faith. 2 Peter chapters 2 and 3. You know what Peter does? Explains and defends the faith. And in Jude, you know what Jude is doing? Exhorting them to contend for this faith that's been clearly defined. And the book of James. What is James doing? James is telling us that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, but that there is a continual work of God being manifested in one's life for one who has come to faith in Christ because faith without works is dead. What is James doing? He is teaching because, look, you say, well, are you saying then that if someone has to work for salvation or to prove they're saved? No. I'm saying if there is a so-called salvation that does not work, then it's not of the faith. And James is defending that. He's explaining that. The very exhortations that given to us in Scripture are not only a defense of the faith, but they also serve as an explanation of the faith of which they were to defend. We must do we must commit ourselves earnestly contend personal engagement personal involvement we all grow in the grace and knowledge of christ we all grow in our understanding of the faith we all grow in our understanding of jesus and knowledge of him who he is all that he has done we continually grow in this truth And none of us have reached absolute understanding of the faith. And none of us are going to reach absolute understanding of the faith. But if there's not a continual growing in the faith, and desiring for the faith, standing the faith, and defending the faith, then there is a real problem with what you call your faith. Or the faith as you would define it. So when we ask what the faith is, sure, there are non-negotiables. That's absolute. There are things that, if someone does not believe in the deity of Christ, they are perverting the faith. They are perverting the truth, right? If someone believes that they can earn salvation by their works, that is a perversion of the truth of the gospel, the faith of the gospel, that which has been handed down to us of God. If someone is declaring that, that, you know, that God is not God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, then that is perverting the faith. It's perverting the very... Uh, revelation of God to man as God is 
chosen to, de, to, de, to reveal himself to mankind. And so we understand that these are things that, that are absolute. These are things that Jesus literally came, literally lived, literally died, literally rose again in a glorified body, ascended unto the Father. We understand that. And these are absolutes. These are non-negotiables. There are no ifs, ands, buts here at all. But hear me, the faith is not that alone by definition of five or six things you might list. Might I dare say to you that if that were the case, then would the apostle, surely, probably Paul, had written and said, look, this is what you are looking for. This is what we defend right here. Just want to give you a list. No, it's the entirety of the revelation of Christ and this redemptive work of God. This is the faith. This is that which we have. Important that we be rooted and grounded in the faith so that we have confidence in the truth of God as He has revealed Himself to us. As we be not easily tossed about by every wind of doctrine, and that we not be deceived with those who would attempt to cunningly deceive, and those who lie in wait to deceive, those who are ministers of Satan and yet appear as ministers of righteousness, those who take portions of truth and pervert the truth rather than exalting Christ. Again, remember, I have to point you back to this and I'm finished for this evening, but let me point you back to this truth. That in Philippians chapter 1, Paul makes it very clear, as I've mentioned already, that if Christ be preached. But that's a big statement there and an absolute statement. He doesn't again say if somebody just name drops Jesus or perverts the message, then Jesus at least is being... No, he's not. That's the whole point. If Christ is not preached, that which you have received, that which you have embraced, that which you have been taught, Paul says, continue in these things. Remember what he told Continue in these things that thou hast heard of me. And that they've been verified by many witnesses. Remember that? That these are truths that are absolute. And he says, continue in these and don't fall to anything else. So this is the faith. That which God has revealed to us. And the truths that have been handed down to us. And there are non-negotiables, absolutely. And I acknowledge that. And that's, that's irrefutable. But let us be aware that just memorizing or quoting a creed, a confession, or five or six things does not mean that you are engaging in the faith. You are to grow in the knowledge of Christ and in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Contend, earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Once for all. Of Scripture, not talking about uh, Greek or, or man. No, we're talking about the truth of God that's been handed down and borne testimony to, and that the revelation of Jesus Himself, the personified truth. I'm the way, the truth, the life. He is the personification of truth, the truth of God. Reveal Jesus to us. Honestly. Contend for the faith. Engage the faith. Because again, you will never be prepared to engage a culture with any true message until you've engaged the faith. Until you are rooted and grounded in the faith yourself. Pray, Father, thank you again.